Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome to Moments That Rock, a proud member of the Pantheon Group of Podcasts and home to a plethora of wonderful music-based podcasts. I'm your host, Tony Michaelidis, and after spending some 30 years in the music industry and working with some of the world's leading artists, I've finally been paroled, adopted by Pantheon and sharing some amazing stories from some equally amazing people. Moments That Rock is that moment where artists and music industry insiders share moments that rocked their world. And a happy new year, dear podcast listener. More to come over the weeks, months, years, decades. And uh, today we have uh, Mr. Dave Haslam, who was on uh, Moments That Rock a few weeks back, and uh, part two of his episodes. And then we'll follow that with Mr. Ian McNabb. But first... When I was growing up, I remember the first time that I heard Joy Division. And I was 17. And hearing Joy Division for the first time, whether it's the day or the month when the records came out all that time ago, or whether you're new to Joy Division, it's kind of like a moment you don't really forget because they were an extraordinary band. And to be 17 and hear Joy Division when you're at an age where you're absorbing stuff, I think, in an intense way, which you might not do later on in your life. You know, you're like a kind of blank slate. And hearing Joy Division for me was just incredible. So uh, it wasn't long, unfortunately, afterwards that um, Ian Curtis took his own life. So quite naturally, I began to follow New Order. And New Order for me have ended up not just soundtracking my life, but somehow being really embedded in my life. You know, the, the, and, and then getting to DJ at the Hacienda, the club that they part owned. Um, it, for me, it was almost like I'd started out as a 17-year-old on the outside looking in at this world, which fascinated me. And, and and this world that featured Joy Division. And then within just a few years, I was kind of inside that world, DJing at the Hacienda and, and getting to know New Order and, and Factory Records. 
And then, as I say, all my life, I kind of have followed New Order and I've got to know them and I've interviewed them many, many times uh, for different magazines, my own fanzine, radio. And then in 2018, I was working at Manchester International Festival, which happens every two years in Manchester. And the point of the festival is to uh, instigate new work, either by emerging bands or emerging artists or any kind of art, really, or to find an established act and to allow them to do something they wouldn't ordinarily do. And I began working with New Order. And it was my suggestion to the Manchester International Festival, I'll talk to New Order and we'll come up with a plan to do something that the band have never done before and that they wouldn't ordinarily do in the usual rhythm of write an album, record an album, tour the album. It's going to be something different from that. And uh, I sat down and talked to the band about various ideas that we had. And uh, Bernard from the band, Bernard Sumner, came up with this idea of New Order performing live with a synthesizer orchestra, uh, 12 synthesizers. And which to me, I knew, I mean, Bernard is a bit nerdy like that. You know, he embraced digital culture really early. Um, I mean, even, you know, when Joy Division were around, I mean, the first Joy Division record ever recorded was called Digital. So Bernard was, that really floated Bernard's boat. So we went to Manchester International Festival and said, okay, we want to do New Order playing with a synthesizer orchestra. Uh, I mean, by this time, bands were playing with like an orchestra orchestra with violins and so on, but no one had attempted the synthesizer orchestra. And um, various people came on board and the people at the festival secured Granada TV studios. Now, Granada TV was the regional TV station and their studios had closed, but they were still viable just about. And again, uh, Joy Division's first ever TV appearance was on Granada TV in one of those studios. So there was a, a in in all this story. There's a kind of the circularity of life is really a, a part of the story. That New Order, after all these years, were going back to Granada Studios this time to do a live performance that they'd never done before with a synthesizer orchestra, and uh, picking various tracks out of their you know their their huge discography. So that project took. I think probably from the first meeting to the first performance, probably almost a year. And obviously the band had to rehearse with the orchestra. The orchestra we we took from students from the local music school, Royal Northern College of Music. So we also had people who were 17, 18, people who were the age I was when I first heard Joy Division. And so we had uh, 12 of them each with a synthesizer, and um, a, a new score was done for each of the New Order songs, so they all had a part to play. And uh, we performed, if I'm right, I think I remember rightly, we performed five evenings 
uh, in this studio at Granada, which held about, I would say, seven or eight hundred, maybe a thousand people. And uh, so for me, it was like the culmination of um, my, my obsession with Joy Division and New Order. In fact, New Order did on those occasions did um, some Joy Division cover versions. Their performance with the with the synthesizer orchestra of decades by Joy Division was incredible. So that was for me very. In fact, when they played one night, I was stood next to Manny from the Stone Roses, and and as as decades started, we just looked at each other, and we we were both, which is not like what we normally like. We were both speechless because it was just the emotion of the music. And the moment was incredible. And that is, that's what the moment is all about. It's when you re, re, it reaches deep, deep inside you. And the only other thing about that incredible summer of 2018, 2019, which is when it was in the end of the performances, was that um, we wanted to do things differently. So... We had a meeting, uh, in fact, the only meeting between the whole of the band and the festival organisers that everyone attended, because mostly it was me running between the two, uh, was uh, I pointed out that we decided not to have a support act for New Order, but we also decided not to have a DJ blasting music. We wanted to, it to feel like a, you know, a, a different kind of an atmosphere. And um, I said, I think we should have something filling the silence before the band play. And uh, everyone kind of looked at me and, and, and Bernard looked at me. And then the man from, uh, the, the, man from uh, the festival, the main guy at the festival, said, well, what would you suggest? Now, I am quite good at thinking on my feet. And I'd kind of, I'd, I'd sort of got myself in this situation where I'd said we need something. And I was obviously supposed to be the person to come up with a solution. So I said, well, I, I, what I envisage is maybe an hour long ambient type soundscape. So it's kind of noise and there's something going on. It's not silence, but it's not music. And, um, and everyone kind of looked at me and I thought, this needs further clarification. And again, I, this is something I hadn't even thought of. And I remembered that I'd had my heartbeat recorded um, uh, with really great digital equipment uh, a few years before for a completely different art project. So I thought, well, maybe this is the time to bring my heartbeat into this situation. So I said, an hour-long soundscape using just a heartbeat uh, so you walk into the room and it's dark. It feels almost like a womb or it feels like something's very special is happening and you're hearing a heartbeat, which is like the most, it, it's what life is about, this heartbeat. And maybe a bit of, I said, also, you know, maybe a few voices, a few found voices, a few noises. And uh, Bernard just looked at me and said, yeah, do it. Now, I hadn't thought I was going to do it. I was just coming up with this idea off the top of my head, thinking they'd go away and find somebody who don't, did that kind of thing. So they gave me a bit of money to go away and make this. And I've got a, a sound designer friend who lives in Paris. So I came over to Paris and together with her, we put together this thing. And I had little 
snippets of interview with um, all of New Order, uh, lots of them, and I, I kind of I cut out little bits so you could hear in this ambient soundscape kind of these echoey, shadowy voices of 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 all a band in New Order talking about um, the band and talking about the songs and uh, talking about synthesizers, and then at the end you've got a bit of Tony Wilson talking. And then the the sounds that we put in were kind of in homage to Martin Hannett. So we tried to create it like a kind of, like Unknown Pleasures by New Order, by Joy Division, has got little noises like um, breaking glass at one point. So we had a, the opening of an industrial lift. Anyway, we put all this together and the band loved it. So every night of the performance, I'd walk into the room uh, to see, you know, how things were going and, you know, to do all that kind of stuff that an organiser is supposed to do. And all I could hear was my heartbeat. Boom, 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 boom. And uh, it worked really well, but it was weird for me because when I walked into the room every night, my heartbeat began to synchronise with the heartbeat banging out of the speaker. And that was kind of quite weird. Um, but for me, I mentioned about how emotional the whole performance was and to, and to actually somehow incorporate my heart and my heartbeat into those evenings was just the best thing ever. What a great story from my old hometown, Manchester. That's the legendary DJ from the Hacienda and many years after that playing everywhere and anywhere and author as well, Mr. Dave Haslam. Good guy. So we'll take a short break and then we'll be back with Ian McNabb. Ian McNabb has uh, a solo career now, obviously, and uh, he was on a previous Moments That Rock reciting some great stories about Brian Wilson and um, Neil Young. And we spoke about how the icicle works. Started off... Hello, Pantheon Podcast listeners. Christian Swain here to tell you more about my experience with Raycon earbuds. Our family now has three pairs of Raycon earbuds around the house. And my wife just grabbed a pair of the headphone pros to replace some headphones from a company that was double the price. And yes, she loves them. Now, if you haven't pulled the trigger on a pair of Raycons, or even if you have, but you're in the market for another pair because they're just that good, well, now is the time to check them out because they just launched their upgraded model of the best-selling everyday earbuds. With Raycon's upgraded everyday earbuds, now you also get active noise cancellation, ergonomic design, and multi-point connectivity that lets you pair with two devices at once. New quick charge function, three customizable sound styles plus awareness mode, available in a variety of vibrant new colors to complement any and all skin tones. I even have a pair of earbuds in a cool green color. I have tried just about every earbud known to humankind and these Raycons are fantastic. Seriously, if you've been wanting to check out Raycons, there truly is no better time. You're going to ask yourself why you didn't check them out sooner. And Raycon offers a 30-day happiness guarantee. So what are you waiting for? Go to buyraycon.com slash pantheon today to get 20% off your Raycon order plus free shipping. That's right. You'll get 20% off and free shipping at buyraycon.com slash pantheon. Buyraycon.com slash pantheon. Hey folks, Stefan Shirazi and Renee Richardson here from the Metallica Report. And we are proud members of the Pantheon podcast family, where the best of music and podcasts unite. We've got something pretty cool for you. 
we're giving away an exclusive Metallica merch package worth over $250. That's a whole lot of scary guys, skulls, M72, and other sought-after Metallica swag. And we've made it easy for you to win. Follow and share the Metallica report, and you're in the game. Go to pantheonpodcast.com slash Metallica, enter your email, and hit that button to be entered to win. And just like that, you're eligible for our monthly exclusive Metallica merch package. And guess what, rockers? You can enter every month. So just do it. And while we love our global brothers and sisters, the lawyers won't let us ship outside the U.S. Or not started off in America. But first of all, this. How was America for you back in the day? It's a strange one, that, and it's, it's always something that I, I kind of occasionally, not I kind of occasionally think about. I think about it when people like yourself ask me about it, because we were really poised to do something, something in America. Um, I think there were a few mistakes made. We First of all, our label, Beggar's Banquet in this country, there was quite a, a feeding frenzy because, you know, this was when MTV had just started in America and, you know, you had, it was like the second English in, invasion or British invasion, should I say, or Dublin invasion. Um, so we there was a bidding war for us. And in the end, we went with Arista Records. Clive Davis wanted to do it. To a scream was looking like it was going to be a hit. They were going to spend a lot of money on it, etc. So that's what we did. And what happened was we went out there and we worked really hard for about six months. And then we went and did the second album and they didn't like it. So they wouldn't put it out. No. So we didn't tour America with the second album. And then by the time we did the third one with songs like Understanding Jane and Evangeline, Who Do You Want? Stuff like that. Um, you know, we'd lost a lot of momentum. And the the whole sort of new English invasion thing had quietened down. So what we should have done there, really, I think, because we were offered a deal by Backstreet Records, which was uh, Tom Petty's label through MCA. If we would have gone with them, I don't think they would have spent a fortune on payola. I think they would have spent money making sure we were on tour all the time and doing it at a reasonably comfortable level so we didn't mind being away from home all the time. And then when the second album came out, which had Hollow Horse on it, which is now regarded as like quite a, a big tune, um, I think it would have worked out better. But all I can say about that is if somebody dropped the ball, it wasn't me. And I'm fine with things like that. As long as I know it wasn't me that fucked up on something, I can kind of look myself in the mirror. Because there's obviously been things that have happened in my career that have been my fault. And I take that on the chin, you know. But America was was a I mean, you know, the, I, I'm from Kensington in Liverpool, which is a very work, working class area. I'd only been on a plane once and we went to America. And the first place we went to was Sausalito in Nor Northern California. We were picked up with a limo, you know, and this was in 1984 when you only saw America on the telly. You know, if you wanted to make a phone call to somebody from America back to England, you had to book it three months in advance, you know, and it'd be like, hello, England. <laughs> you know, that it was it was just like another planet. <laughs> oh, God, it, it was ridiculous. And it was an incredible experience. I remember being in the limousine and the, and the guys had the windows down and I said, put the windows up because we might get shot, you know. Because that's that, that's just off the telly and what had happened to John Lennon. But it was amazing. Uh, and I'm glad I got to do it. You know, we did the American Bandstand with 
Dick Clark and we did, you know, all the MTV stuff and we were in we were at the Tropicana in LA for a week and it was just tremendous and I was always disappointed that we didn't really get to do it again. A lot of the time it's the right band at the right time. It, it's like I remember when, uh, you know, Guns N' Roses supported Aerosmith in 1989 when Appetite for Destruction was out and they, spent, they blew all the money or uh, Geffen blew all the money getting a film crew to film them. So every video from that album had Guns N' Roses performing in front of Aerosmith's audience in a stadium. So they already looked massive, you know, and that, that's that's very clever. It's like Bowie, you know, when he was first over there, he, he, you know, he wasn't really that, he wasn't big at all, but he acted like he was a superstar and it was limos everywhere. He, and it, that stuff goes a long way. But he, he worked hard for a very long time. Oh, yeah. And got a lot of knockbacks. I mean, he had a smash hit with Space Oddity. That one hit, been, though. For two or three years, was viewed as a as a, a novelty record, you know. And the Laughing Gnome did in no favours. That followed him round. But he worked really hard. And and as, as we say up now, he was honing his act. Absolutely. At the time, you know, all of that is a superstar, he's a sleeping giant, so that when Ziggy did come through, I mean, it's quite funny with Honky Dory, I mean, that's that's a tremendous record, but it's kind of like a singer-songwriter record. Mm. And on the cover, he had a dress on and long hair, and it was like it could have fitted in anyway. You know, bits of it sound like Neil Young and Cat Stevens and, and what have you. He, he wasn't really an alien at that point. But when Ziggy came through, it was all greased and the machine was running. I'm not telling you anything you don't know. And, of course, he did have it to back it up, you know. I think believing in yourself is the most important thing that you can have. Without a doubt. But I think the thing is that if you believe in yourself, the audience follow you. They kind of had their duty to sort of think, well, yeah, this is curious and I want to know more. Because, there's, you know, anybody can get, if they can play, can get on stage and perform. But there's a lot more to an artist, you know. Looking back, like, to when you were growing into the business and if you were starting up now, what do you think would be kind of, you know, the the problems, if that's the right word? Well, I think the, the problem, I mean, we thought it was hard back then, but looking back, you know, because what you we had increments of getting there in those days. You'd form the band, you'd, you'd find a mate to, who had a van to take you there, you'd manage to get the money together for rehearsals. You'd write songs and then you'd do a demo tape and then you'd try and get gigs and then you'd get some gigs and then you'd try and get a, a radio session, a peel session, something like that. And then if you got a peel session, you'd be on national radio and then you'd do a few gigs in London and A&R men would come to see you and then hopefully you'd get a deal. And then once you, that was in place, the publishers would come along and then the press had, and it all kind of built up. And also there was a filtration process whereby you kind of had to have something decent about you to get a record out because it was very expensive to record and all of that kind of business. Whereas now, um, although you, you don't have the sessions and the music press doesn't mean anything um, and you can communicate with an audience straight away, I, I always say... The best thing about the internet is that anybody can make a record and get it out there. And I also say, and the worst thing about the internet is anybody can make a record. 
just as a side part, so do you remember once we had this discussion <laughs> and I still tell people about this? You know, when you're watching a gig, right? And like, because you you'd be watching a band and you're not that crazy about them, and they and they've done the songs that you like. And after about 15, 20 minutes, wouldn't it be great if like they could have some other artist singers on the bench, like get Bono on for a couple of tunes. <laughs> I always thought that would be the great way for football and music to merge. The comparison, again, with music and football, I thought, wouldn't it be amazing, like, if, you know, Bono goes to R.E.M. to replace Michael Stipe for seven million? <laughs> it's like and then, signing and then, Ronaldo. Stipe, and then Stipe has to go over to U2 and sing New Year's Day. And yeah, yeah. Whatever. On a serious note, though, going back to what you were saying, Ian, um, basically, that's kind of my kind of grooming in the business because the thing that I enjoyed the most with people like yourself and stuff was the artist development side of things starting from a grassroots level yeah. and that's what happened with people like David Beckham and stuff you know he practicing sure. free kicks on the field you know on the field and then sure. grooms his way up he has great management and then he puts him center stage at the right time and the yeah. rest is history and so many people don't get the privilege of that going back to what you were saying to me what would be the problems now I think the biggest problem is that in those days, um, I mean, you remember when when you were doing stuff with me with This Way Up, Andrew Lauder. Yeah. You know, one of the the last great guys that was a bit, done it all, been there, but was still there making decisions, signing things that he really liked. And, I mean, he signed me and then suggested that I should go to L.A. to record with Neil Young's band. What you were saying about giving David Beckham a chance at the in, at the right point in the game—that's what he did. That's what like people like Martin Mills from Beggars Banquet did. Um, Rob Dickens at Warner's—you know—he he did that thing with the Bunny Men where he says, "Why don't you do cover the Doors song? Get Ray Manzarek from the Doors to play in it with you." And there's this film coming out called The Lost Boys, and you know the ideas, men. I don't really think that that's around anymore. I, I, you know, and I, I always hear these stories whereby you get signed these days generally by how many follow, followers you've got on Instagram. I've had three major deals in my life. Beggar's Banquet, uh, which was, you know, they were, they were basically a major label. And then This Way Up was Ireland. And I was, Muff Winwood signed us to Epic for a while. So, you know, three Three major labels and I left them owing 250,000 pounds it's always a quarter of a million pounds (laughs) I've had this conversation with Bill Nelson from Bebop Deluxe and he says he left AMI and his royalties never changed it was always quarter of a million pounds you work with somebody you have a relationship you're talking about dropping people I mean you know, that was always the big fear. I mean, we, we managed to stay. Oh, that was another thing, what you're just talking about there. I'm sure that Ireland, if it would have taken a bit longer for you two, I'm sure that they would have let them make a couple more records, you know. That's what a, a great label does. You know, it's nowadays it's one album, as we know. Sometimes it's one single, you know. Oh, yeah, and yeah. There was, and there was always... And the terrible thing is that once you get dropped 
by label. There's always a, a stigma. Everybody in the industry knows you've been dropped, you know, in Liverpool because there's so many bands and so many artists. <clears throat> and we all got picked up and dropped so many times that there would be places in town where you could go and where you couldn't go. So we used to frequent the dropped bar quite a lot, you know, and all the dropped bands would be in there slagging off all the bands that were in the signed bar. And if you accidentally went in the signed <laughs> bar, you weren't going to stay long because everybody would be going, oh, so <laughs> what are you doing in the signed bar? Shouldn't you be in the drop bar, you know? But that's how it was. And then you'd get signed again and then you could go in the signed bar. Couldn't say for sure, but I do have some threadbare contacts still with people who are at least on the, the, the edges of the, the music business these days. You know, I know a couple of people who still live in London, you know, and that kind of thing doesn't really go on anymore. You know, there's this really hot band playing at, at quarter past 11 in the, the dog on Amoeba on this. You know, that doesn't really happen anymore because they won't get A&R men going to see them unless they've got a, a significant amount of clout on social media, you know. And, and so that, that changed. And instant gratification is another thing that we have to deal with, is that people... Nowadays, remember when you used to put a vinyl album on and if you didn't really like a few tracks, you'd go back and play it again and again and again and then eventually you'd get into it, you know. Whereas nowadays, it's not even vinyl for most of us. It's like they put a track on. They're like, people are like A&R men. If they don't like the 30 seconds, they just click and they're onto another artist or another track. You know, if something doesn't grab you, you know, for instance, when, when you used to go and hire, hire a video, You'd go to Blockbuster and you'd rent a video. And this, and even before DVDs, and you'd have your VHS tape and you'd sit down and the missus would be there. And you'd have your tea. And then you'd say, right, should we put the video on? And then, you, you know, you'd have to get on your hands and knees and get on the floor and push the bloody thing in and then flick around and get it on the station and dim the lights a little bit and then off you go. And then you put, so you put the video on. And you're watching it. And if you're not really into it, you leave it on because it's such a fag to have to get up and turn it off. And I know a few people say, well, you know, albums, they're like 20 minutes long and you have to get up and turn it over. And it was like, yeah, but that was the thing. You know, you had to make sure the last track on side one was an invitation to side two. You know, there was an art form in that. But nowadays, of course, you know, you don't, your computer's allied with your, your TV. And you watch it, if you don't get into a movie within 15 minutes, you flick onto something else. Final question on this bit. If you were, like, 16, 17, starting up today, mm. do you think you'd have the resilience and the persistence that you had back in the day, the equivalent? I.e., do you think, I'm not going to bother, nobody cares? Well, it's quite hard to think back to when I was that age, because it was so long ago. <laughs> When we were doing the first High School Works album in Rockfield with Hugh Jones, who was like a very popular producer at the time, you know, we did the Bunny Men and Teardrops and, you know, we'd done loads of stuff. And we were recording in Rockfield in, in South Wales and Robert Plant was in the other studio and he was doing one of his first solo records. And one night he, he came out and told everyone that he was going to be doing a gig at a pub in town, you know. And so everyone was like, oh, man, oh, great. OK, so we'll finish up early and we'll go go and watch Robert Plant doing his gig in the pub. And I remember saying to Hugh Jones, so will he get paid for that? And he says, what do you mean? I says, well, you know, because obviously, you know, 
yet he's not he's not rich or anything, is he? And he went, what the fuck are you talking about? <laughs> and I said, well, you know, because Led Zeppelin, I I liked Led Zeppelin. I, I mean, I was more into me T-Rex and Bowie and stuff like that. But I had a couple of Led Zeppelin albums, but I never saw them on the telly. Um, they were in the music papers once a year. Um, they never got a good press. No, they never got... And when they were in the press, they got slagged off. They never played in Liverpool because they were too big. So you'd have to go to that, that London to see them in the mid-70s, Earl's Court or something. And you, you never heard them on the radio. So I just thought they were like a bit of a cult band, you know. And he went, no, Led Zeppelin were like one of the biggest bands ever. But because they weren't on top of the pops and because I didn't hear them on the radio. So I didn't know. I didn't know that you could make a lot of money from from music, honestly. And the reason why I was doing it was because I loved it so much. You know, and it didn't matter to me if there was 10 people there or or no people there. Obviously, you need some people there. But when big crowds started turning up, I got nervous because I thought, God, what are they expecting? You know, and then, and then it was like, you've got to be really good. Whereas when there was just your mates there, it was just great. But that, that, that works in reverse, because when you're playing with a big crowd, you have to play like you're playing to a small crowd. You have to retain that kind of intimate contact with them. So you have to kind of check people out as you're doing it and don't think there's 10,000 people there or what, you know. And and there is is an art to that, you know. Um, But, but, you know, as I was saying to you when we spoke yesterday, you know, I've played all the working men's clubs when I was a whippersnapper. But that's um, called paying your dues, isn't it? Led Zeppelin used to like... when, When I first started working with you too, they... They had the tour manager driving the bus. They had the equipment in the back and they had like six airline seats to sit in. And then they'd yeah. drive and they'd share four in a motel room, two two rooms if they were lucky, you know. But I think... Excuse me, Tony, did you say airline seats? <laughs> no, Luxury. <laughs> Luxury. <laughs> airline seats. We were bloody sitting on the amps, you know. Yeah. And it's like, you know, it's like when you, when you hear the Beatles say, you know, we'd go down to London and uh, it was so cold and we'd be... There'd be a beetle sandwich, you know, and we'd move around, <laughs> someone would get on the top. But it was the only way we could keep warm. But you don't know. Just just going back to the Led Zeppelin thing, Ian, just to, just to close on that one, was um, the interesting there was I'm always a great believer in teams, you know, getting the right people around you. Well, you talk about, like, an incredibly talented band that were enormously successful internationally and still are huge, you know, to mm. people who like music and things. But you've got to include in that Ahmed Ertigan and Peter Grant, because yeah, Peter man. Grant changed the model with management because sure. he said to Ahmed, he said, well, you know, and, and he, he got the support. It's like, well, why do we put singles out when we can sell albums, you know? And they yeah. didn't, like, make their music available for TV ads and stuff, even to yeah. the extent of what I love with them is like, you know, for instance, Jethro, till somebody leaves, somebody else comes in, you know. When John Bonham went, that was the end of Led Zeppelin. It wasn't think, like Robert Plant. I think you really and... got to drop your cap to, to Led Zeppelin for that. Yeah. Um, I, I remember reading something where, whereby they said when John Bonham died, the phone would be going in at Swan Song, which was Led, Led Zeppelin's label, Peter Grant and Richard Gold. And loads of people ringing up when John Bonham died. So, so, you know, people like Carl Palmer, Phil Collins, you know, these big, big cats, Carmina Peace saying, listen, uh, you know, if you need a drummer. Yeah. Peter Grant always says, listen, stop calling this fucking office. 
We are Led Zeppelin, not the fucking Who. <laughs> Whereas the Who decided yeah. we're going to carry on. And, you know, fair enough. And the, the, the Who actually got bigger yeah. after Keith Moon died because they had Quadrophenia out and what have you. But I've always respected that about uh, Led Zeppelin. And, of course, they only really got back together a couple of times and it was usually a drunken mess. But it was, they played for the the arm when he died, the Armored Erdogan Foundation. Armored in 2007, and they got Jason Bonham in. I mean, that was a really terrific show. But, you know, that was appreciation for for a guy who was so important to him. The other thing that I think is wonderful is, like, you know, the internet went down that day. There were so many people clambering for tickets. A slight deviation from our moments from Mr. Ian McNabb, but I thought it was interesting to, uh, to find out kind of the inner workings of how you break in a separate country and things and stuff like that. So it's good to find out from a guy that, one, you worked with, and two, uh, who knows exactly he's been there. I love the bit about going to a pub that's kind of signed bands and one that's unsigned bands and everybody knows who the other one is. Anyway, we shall see you soon with Moments That Rock, a proud member of the Pantheon group of podcasts. I'm your host, or was your host, Tony Michaelidis. It's NFL draft season, and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football. FantasyPoints.com features industry-leading experts and prognosticators using proprietary hand-charted data to help you score more fantasy points. FantasyPoints.com is the place to go for whatever kind of fantasy football you play. Whether you play fantasy football, daily fantasy sports, or do a little bit of everything, Fantasy Points has the meticulously researched content to guide you to victory. And why wait for the fall? Fantasy Points also covers the new spring football league, the UFL. Join the guru, John Hansen, Scott Barrett, Joe Dolan, and other massive names in the fantasy football universe with an exclusive offer. Use code Pantheon for 15% off any Fantasy Points package, including the all-in package, with access to every article, tool, and data nugget that Fantasy Points has to offer. That's FantasyPoints.com and code Pantheon for 15% off at Fantasy Points. FantasyPoints.com, code Pantheon. Score more Fantasy Points.